0: So hear this from the word of the Lord from uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Pray with me. Most merciful, most holy, Father, our great God, you are the word. We depend upon you and your spirit to illuminate your word to our hearts, to our minds, to our souls. So we lean on you this morning to bring to us understanding, to bring to us wisdom, to use your word to continually shape and mold us to be like your word. We Pray this and depend on your spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we approach Advent season, as we approach this Gospel of John, I come to you with a bit of a heavy heart as our church is entering into a difficult season of grief and loss. Uh, As we have many members of our church that are struggling with this health, for one, many of you know that Nate's father, Tony Walker, is not doing well as he's battling for his health. Uh, Also, just this past week, on Thursday, we had a family uh, of someone, a part of our church, came to the door and let us know that uh, their mom, this darling Upton, had passed away. On Thanksgiving Day, she had a stroke and died. Um, And not to lay this on thicker, but just to be real with the gravity of, of life and the situation where I was at church. There's another lady named Karen, Kara Fraser, is a newer person attending our church who, a few months ago, found out she had stage 4 cancer and, and death was imminent. And then she had a stroke a couple weeks ago, and it looks like death is closer than maybe she once thought. And, of course, there's other things that you know, we don't even know about that are happening in, in your life different types of grief, different types of loss. The one thing that all this reminds us of is that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. There's not supposed to be death and dying and sorrow and pain. Death is an aberration. And in this season of staring into the realities of a broken world, We find ourselves in this season of Advent. (laughs) I don't think this is an accident. Advent, if you're unfamiliar, is the beginning of our Christian calendar. The Christian calendar is one that takes us to the story of, actually the Bible, by taking us to the story of Jesus. Before he came, as he came, what he did while he was here, until we celebrate his his death and resurrection, and Good Friday and, and Easter, and then we celebrate the ascension as he Goes to be with the Father and sits down because his work is finished. In the church calendar, we we go through the story of Scripture, through the story of Jesus, and and something that's unique to the beginning of this calendar and the season of Advent is a recognition that this world is not what it was meant to be. Uh, in her recent book on on Advent, the author Fleming Rutledge says this. Uh, it's in your quote section there, that Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the realities of the life that we live. Um, And just as we needed Jesus to come in a manger, so now we needed him to come and vanquish the darkness in our world to bid our sorrows cease, to bring us comfort and joy and peace, and a kind of comfort and joy and peace that we haven't experienced this side of heaven. The kind of comfort and joy and peace that has no end, that lasts for eternity. And this is what we find in this Advent season, not merely looking back at the god man who came, but looking forward to the Christ who died, who rose, and who will come again. It's another quote from Fleming Rutledge's book, says this, Advent is not really the season of preparing for Jesus' birth as though he had never come in the first place. Advent is a season of preparing for His coming again. Advent is a season of longing for us. It is the reality of living into the truths of our now and not yet faith. Our faith that is living in this tension between the faith that we have and our faith realized. Because we don't live yet as if we're already raised to new life. We don't live yet as if there's no darkness in our world. Nations are still at war, the creation is still growing, and in the midst of this present darkness, Advent becomes an anchor of hope for us. A hope that this darkness that we experience, that we feel, that sometimes follows us, doesn't win. A hope that stirs our imaginations to dream of a world without pain, a world without suffering, without death, without poverty, a world without broken relationships and being separated from our loved ones. Hope that drives our prayers as we seek and ask for God to come quickly to make all things new, to make haste. And we live in this tension between times, what we call the, the now and not yet. The redemption has come indeed for us right now in Christ. Yet the fullness of that redemption is not realized until he comes again, until we're with him for all eternity. We're in this stage that, as Paul puts it, is the present evil age, as we wait for the age that is to come with Christ. And therefore, we're called to keep awake, to be ready, to keep watch, to not lose hope. And as we read and consider the first bit of John 1 together, I think what we're going to find is an amazing hope. That this word that came into the world is no ordinary word. That the boy who came to manger is no ordinary boy. And and that although we we don't yet fully experience it in this life, victory, the victory over darkness is done. It's complete. It is finished. Though our enemy prouds, he does so as a defeated foe. So with with this in mind, let's turn to our first uh, Advent passage this morning in John 1. And as we consider Advent this morning, this text is is teaching us three things, and the first is this the first is where the story begins. First is this, where the story begins. If I sat down for coffee with you, and I told you, I said, Hey, why don't you tell me a little bit about the story of your life? Where would you begin? Well, if it were me, I might begin. Hey, I'm you know I'm from a small farming town in central Washington. It's called Sunnyside. My kids call it Smellyside because it smells really bad. It's a joke. You're welcome. You'd have to you have to be there, I guess. Um, it's cows, anyways. It smells really bad. So, so I'm from, you know, Sunnyside, I'm youngest of four. Um, you know, I like to go for walks along the beach, you know, that kind of thing. We tell a story about our life, right? Where we're from, siblings, try to find a connection. You know, maybe some interesting facts about us, likes, dislikes, or, you know, you might say, well, how did you get to Bellingham? Well, moved here, got a job here, went to college here. You know, we tell the story of our life. Uh, But John reminds us here that our story actually begins long before our lives do. And the more we learn about the history of our story, the more amazing it actually gets. I mean, this is what drives us to go to places like Ancestry.com, right? I think we know this. We want to know the history of our story. And, you know, as you get to know parts of your story, you start to realize there's amazing things. The further you go back, you think, oh, man, if this person didn't do this thing, I might not have made it. You know, I've learned a lot about Jen's family heritage. They do a really good job of um, telling their story. And we learn about her her grandma who was born to uh, a street woman, a prostitute, who had a baby with a soldier in Russia. And by chance, her grandma was adopted by a Christian family just before they decided to immigrate to Canada. And so when you know that about someone's story, you start to realize, oh, that's amazing. Let's go further back. What, how else is your story amazing? And all of us have stories that are, that are amazing, whether we realize it or not. And the same is true for the story of Jesus. The further back you go, the more amazing the story of Christmas actually becomes. Because John begins this story for us not in the manger, not in the the womb, not with the angels singing, not with the shepherds, but he begins it in the beginning. Of course, the readers of this and the hearers of this would, would have recognized that line, right? We recognize this phrase. It's scene one, act one, line one, Genesis one, in the beginning. It's the only phrase in Hebrew that I can still translate. Again, my jokes, sorry. <clears throat> it's me, it's not you. But in the beginning, we recognize this phrase. The story of Jesus begins before the foundation of the world in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And of course, this begs the question, who is this word? And quickly, as John shows us a few verses later, uh, the short answer is actually Jesus. And we're going to come <clears throat> back to this point of talking about who the word is in a moment. For, for now, though, I want us to think a little bit more about where this story begins. First of all, uh, consider how spectacular it is that Jesus was present at creation, that when all things came into being, he was there. As it says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was there is a very important verb for us. Notice, Jesus, the word, didn't become in the beginning. He didn't come into being in the beginning, along with the rest of the created order. But he already was. And this statement anticipates other places in the Gospel of John that emphasizes the preexistence of Jesus by saying, Uh, in John 8 that you are not yet 50 years old and you claim to have seen Abraham and Jesus replies before Abraham was born I am. There's another instance of Jesus speaking of his pre-existence in John chapter 17 in the high priestly prayer where you have this really intimate prayer between Jesus and the Father the Disciples are overhearing, and Jesus makes this astonishing request before God. He says, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And here we have Jesus starting his own story long before Bethlehem. He starts his story in eternity past before the world began. And the second thing we learn about this is that Jesus was not merely present and accounted for at creation, but he was an agent. He was an agent. He was actively working, right? He wasn't a a bystander, just watching the work being done. But he was in the thick of it. John spells this out for us in verse 3. He says this, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I mean, the rest of the New Testament is just as adamant that Jesus was indeed the preexistent eternal Son of God who made all things in the flesh. Colossians 1, 16 puts it this way, that all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus and that in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews adds that God created the world through Jesus and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is not merely present at creation, but he's creating at creation. And even now, sustains and holds all things together. What we find here is that you cannot grasp the significance of Jesus in the manger until you grasp the significance of Jesus in the beginning at creation. And you cannot wonder at the child born under the star until you recognize him as the creator of the stars who determined their number and gave them their names. In other words, unless the story starts here, in the beginning, it simply won't be a story big enough or beautiful enough to transform your life and to give you hope in the midst of the darkness that comes our way. Hope that Jesus will indeed come again. Hope that Jesus will indeed can and has the power to vanquish darkness once and for all. And this is the first challenge this morning as we consider this text and this Advent season to start the Christmas story where John starts it, which is in the beginning. So this is the first thing we learned is where the story begins. The second thing where the story starts. The second thing we learn is who the story stars, who the story stars, because it's, it's just as important that we recognize who the story is about. <clears throat> I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, seen the bumper sticker, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, right? You know, it's a tired phrase, right? It doesn't probably do a whole lot for us. Uh, maybe it did at one point. Maybe it, it never did. No judgment here. But, you know, you can still appreciate the point that's trying to be made, right? because uh, it's, uh, it's easy to make ourselves the star, the centerpiece of the story. You know, any Christmas movie, though, tells you that this is a dead end to make yourself the point of the season. I mean, just ask Scrooge or, or the Grinch or the kid from Home Alone, right? All of them learn, and by the end of the movie, Christmas is not about getting more for yourself, uh, gathering more gifts for yourself, but it's about giving more to others. But I think this is actually more likely where we lose uh, the plot, where we make everyone else in our life the stars of the story. And that's certainly an improvement, but it's still not exactly right because John tells us in verse one who the star is. It's the one he calls the word. So let me let let John introduce this person to you. First, the word is from God. Uh, the word is a is a translation of the Greek word here as logos. It's a word many of John's uh, Greek readers would have understood as a philosophical term. In Greek philosophy, particularly Stoicism, uh, logos was the rational principle of the universe. Think of it as this: is a divine mind that flows from God into reality. This is what logos the word is: is the, is a divine mind which flows from God. Into reality, At the same time, Lagos meant something different to John's Jewish readers. To them, Lagos pointed back to the Old Testament, back where God's Lagos, a word, had great power to make things happen, something some people call his, his speech acts. We see this in Psalm 33, for instance, where the psalmist declares that God spoke the heavens into being. Or Psalm 107, which proclaims that God sent forth his word to heal his people. And more than once, God's word is even personified as a messenger which comes to God's prophets with a message from the living God. But either way, whether you think of logos as this divine reason or, or this divine word, the point is this, that Jesus is more than a prophet or teacher sent to speak God's word. He's more than a mere prophet because he actually is God's word. He is God's word. And in Christ, God has skipped the middleman and given us Jesus, the word of God himself. Jesus is is from God, and he was his very word. The second thing we see here is is that he's he's also with God. He's also the word who is with God. And this idea is is so important that John actually says it twice here in verse 1 and In verse 2, John wants us to know that this word has a special relationship with the living God. So special, John can say he was with God. There's this personal, close connection. And this is the state that Jesus lives with his Father before the foundation of the world. Jesus has been with the Father in this loving relationship. That has no beginning. This relationship that has no end but always was, and out of the overflow of this relationship, God created all that we have through Christ. He was with God. Think for a minute about what John has said about the person, the word so far. He is the word sent from God, who is also with God from the beginning, and that is not all. John also tells us thirdly, that he is God. You know, when we consider the idea of of the Word, or Jesus, being with God. <clears throat> In some ways, this actually distinguishes the Word from God the Father. That even though he has a close relationship with him, the Word is his own person. And when we think about the Word being uh, th- that it was God, it makes it clear that the Word also shares the very nature of God. As one person has put it, that these two concepts present the Word as God's eternal fellow that he's with God, and God's own self, that he was God. And in one verse, we have the basic building blocks of two of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the Trinity, that Christ is both with God and he is God, and the doctrine of Christology, that that Jesus is fully God, that he's fully man. In fact, it's really hard to understand the rest of the gospel story without these two truths. But still, these are not easy concepts for us to grasp, are they? How can someone be fully God and fully man? We don't really have a category for that, right? Our imaginations are too small to fully grasp this. There is a great mystery here. And John is inviting us, though, to peer into these two mysteries at once. The mystery of the Trinity and the mystery of the Incarnation. The good news is we we actually don't have to solve those mysteries to appreciate them, do we? So John isn't giving us puzzles to be solved. He's given us portraits of Jesus to be admired, to be looked at, to give us hope. And that's what we find in in Advent here is, is that it allows for the mystery of the word made flesh to instill wonder and awe in us and in our hearts and to trust him all the more once we realize how other he is, how incomprehensible he is. And it helps us to trust him that he will indeed keep his word because he's the sustainer of his word and that his word will once come again to vanquish the darkness once and for all. This is what we see in these final two verses here. I think we see where the story ends. Where the story ends. if we know the grandeur of this story right that it begins before the foundation of the world if we know the star of the story jesus yahweh in the flesh the god man then we can trust and hold fast in the end of the story that he will accomplish his mission on earth to end the reign of satan to make all things new i think Often we don't get excited about the birth of Jesus, um, sorry, we, we don't get excited about the birth of Jesus because a mere baby was born. We actually get excited because of what it means. We get excited because in the life of Christ, we see this not yet reality. This life, this light is our guide and our comfort that he was incarnate he was man and he knows our pain. We see this here in verse 4, that in him was life and the life was the light of men and that light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. He knows our pain. He knows what it's like to be in the flesh. And that his light shines brighter than the brightest star, conquering death and suffering once and for all. And this gives us hope because we know how the story ends. Sometimes the final phrase of this verse five can be hard to believe, can't it? That the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome the light. Because darkness can feel overwhelming at times. And we on our shoulders, a burden that is there when we wake up, and there when we go to bed, and even there in our dreams. And the shadow of death often has its longest reaches in the winter, like the shadows of an old barn creeping over a field, so death's dark shadows and fingers seem to linger over our lives. We live, as we find, beneath the shadow of death. And this is where we have the most hope. That the the one who came was no ordinary child. That he was not born of the seed of Adam, doomed to fail as his predecessors did. But he was great David's greater son. He was a light who has no equal. And his light shines, it cannot be overtaken. and, And that light is with us. Emmanuel. God with us. With us and that he knows what it is like to feel our pain and sadness. With us and that he knows what it's like to weep and sympathize with us. And also with us in that his victory is our victory. His glory is our glory. And as he conquered death, so do we when we are united with him in faith. And even in our mourning, even in the present darkness that we sometimes find ourselves in, living in, in the world between worlds, We don't mourn like those who have no hope, but we mourn like those who have hope because we believe that Jesus is coming again. We're the ones who keep watch and wait and hope for his return, like those lost at sea in a raft boat looking on the horizon for someone to rescue them. So we are to be fixed on the horizon with expectation. And as we enter this Advent season, and as we run through our our family traditions and trees and lights and songs and making cookies and all the rest, may this give us hope to be a people who do not fear the darkness. May we not ignore the pain in, in our world, but may we with courage face it, look into it, knowing that it is not ultimate, knowing that it does not win, May we, may we with courage be the light of Christ in a world that is desperate to rid herself of darkness, in a world that will do anything to rid itself of pain. May we have no fear, because Christ, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of all, lives within us. Maybe that's the most profound mystery of it all. That the same word that we're talking about that was with God in the beginning, that is from God, that is God, is living inside of us in our hearts. So, may, may we lay claim to the hope that we have. Maybe be a witness to this desperate world, pointing to the one who has come, who has died, who has risen, and who will come again. Because I think only when we remember this, the fullness, of the Christmas story and what it points to in the future? Will the story be big enough and beautiful enough to change us and to give us hope and to bring this hope to the world? Pray with me. Most merciful and gracious Father, our great light, the Word made flesh, to dwell among his people, to give us hope. May you give us hope now and that wherever we are in our life, no matter the circumstances surrounding us, that we would have great hope, great joy because of who we have in you. May you keep our eyes fixed on the horizon. May we wait and hope as we wait with great anticipation that you will indeed come again, that you will put to death, death, and we will one day live forever in your presence. There's no mourning, there's no weeping, but there's joy forevermore. Lord, may we not lose that vision. May we not get distracted. Help us by the power of your spirit working in us, the Father and the Son. One God now and forevermore, we pray. Amen. Amen.